Welcome back to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is about a child who seems to know too much. Please enjoy California Dreaming. When I got the news, I was squatting awkwardly in a gas station bathroom, staring at that telltale little plastic stick. Three to five minutes, that's how long the package had told me to wait. It felt like hours. Those two thin blue lines were simultaneously the most beautiful and most terrifying thing in the world. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to jump for joy or throw up. Well, I definitely wanted to throw up, but that wasn't due to any sort of emotional outburst. A series of sharp knocks at the door interrupted my personal, emotional roller coaster. A road tripper was losing what little patience she had. I postponed any upchucking for later, pulled up my blue jeans, and slunk out the door as the woman glared at me from behind her cat eye shades. My husband, Alan, gave me a perplexed look as I hopped into the car he'd just finished filling with gas. He made a few colorful jokes about wondering if I'd fallen in while taking care of my business to dispel the palpable tension that hung over us. We hadn't exactly been trying to get pregnant, but we talked about how having a little one running around might not be the worst thing in the world. I could tell he had been getting the same suspicions I had been wrestling with since that first bout of morning sickness. Thankfully, his response to the news didn't contain that trace of terror that mine had. He'd always been more the optimist, the voice of reason that drowned out my constant cynicism. Still, I couldn't help but feel it was easy for him to be excited in this case because he knew he wouldn't be the one having to give birth. Still, his jubilance settled my doubts, and soon I began fantasizing about little baby booties and onesies. Mine wasn't an easy pregnancy. But then, easy pregnancies probably only existed in whatever universe unicorns and Instagram influencers lived in. Luckily, I had Alan to lend a hand. He was ever the patient and doting father-to-be. There were never any complaints from him as he rushed to the supermarket at all hours of the night to purchase yet another jar of pickles and a box of chocolate chip cookies. I used to dunk the cookies into the pickle juice. Don't knock it till you try it. He never questioned my mood swings, never told me to calm down or that I was overreacting. He just took it all in stride and offered a hug or tissue when needed. Not even when I was nine months pregnant, taking up 80% of the bed with my giant belly and cocoon of pillows, did he so much as groan. I had the perfect husband, and he would be the perfect father for our baby. Or so, I thought. When Ava, our little girl, was born, she never seemed to be able to calm down when he held her. Something we'd written off because infants tend to bond with fathers later than they do with mothers. But after her first birthday, her apathy towards him turned into aversion. She couldn't stand to be in the same room as him unless I was holding her. Even then, she would shiver and whimper the entire time. She never once said dada, daddy, papa, none of it. Any time he approached her, she would wrap herself around me and cry out a sharp, shrill, no. Alan was devastated. I mean, who wouldn't be? I tried to reassure him that babies didn't always take to people right away, that maybe if he spent more time with her, she'd warm up to him. People? I'm not people, I'm her father, he said, his eyes looking pained. I'd never once seen Alan cry, 
Even then, he couldn't do it. It was actually harder to see him this way. He was like a dam full to bursting with tears that he'd never shed. Alan doubled down on his efforts to spend time with Ava, but it only got worse. Once, he spent a full day alone with her, insisting that I take the day off and visit my mother. He called me six hours later. She hadn't slept or eaten the entire time. Where he found the willpower to listen to a toddler scream for six hours straight was beyond me, but he said he tried. He tried everything. Even in the best of circumstances, raising a child can put a strain on the most perfect marriage. A child who vehemently hates her own father is hardly the best of circumstances. As Ava's language skills improved so rapidly that it shocked her pediatrician, she seemed to learn more and more ways to voice her resistance to her father. He's bad, she would shout. Bad man, bad man, Ava hurt. Of course, Alan denied it, and I was inclined to believe him. Ava never wandered out of my sight, and not once had Alan raised so much as his tone against her, let alone his hands. Still, Ava acted terrified around him, which left him sullen and angry at her. I was caught in the middle of the cycle between the two of them. His insistence over the years began to give me pause, however, especially when she began whispering a new word around him. He kill. I stared at her, shocked. A two-year-old has no reason to even know that word. Killer, she said in an eerily calm tone, pointing to him. He kill Catherine. Alan's eyes widened and his face turned red. What the, what the hell are you teaching her? He screamed at me. It was the first time in our relationship I ever heard him yell. I shook my head hard. Are you crazy? Why would I do such a thing? Why would I teach her something like that? Ava, baby. I turned to our pink-cheeked toddler who was calmly playing with blocks, as if she hadn't just casually uttered something terrifying. What do you mean? Where did you hear that? She didn't respond. Was it on TV? Did someone say that to you? She stayed absorbed in the green and blue wooden blocks on the table as she hummed a tune softly to herself. After that point, Alan's endlessly patient personality did a complete 180. He began shouting at her at every little thing, treating her coldly and talking about her like she was some kind of object. One day, he even suggested getting rid of her like she was a badly behaved pet. One night, after Alan got home from work, he stood watching Ava twirl in the living room, humming the same tune I'd heard her singing to herself more and more lately. It sounded vaguely familiar, but I couldn't place it. Then all of a sudden, she burst out, "'California dreamin' on such a winter's day!' Alan stormed towards her, and for a moment I thought he was about to strike her. But then he stopped cold right in front of Ava, and the two glared at each other in silence. Catherine remembers that song, Ava said softly, tears suddenly streaming down her face. Alan's eyes bulged, and without saying a word, he turned on his heel and stormed away. I took Ava into my lap and consoled her. Daddy hates Catherine, she whimpered. No, no, baby, he doesn't know she's your friend, I whispered back. I had spoken to Ava's doctor weeks ago, and he told me that having imaginary friends was normal for kids her age, especially when there weren't other kids in the home. Catherine was real for her, and so I told her I loved her friend Catherine just like she did. If you're enjoying Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Thank you. 
You can listen to Nighty Night Bedtime Stories to keep you awake ad-free on Amazon Music. I'm one of those people who turns off all notifications on my phone and devices, except for this one. That's because that is another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your own business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anybody from everywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or making candles or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform that simplifies commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps growing, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, and they've even got you covered across all social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to their 24-7 hour support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. Look, starting and growing a business, even though it can be daunting, it can't be made any easier than how Shopify has it set up for you. We all know how important the side hustle is nowadays and how important it is to try to get the side hustle to become your main hustle. And Shopify makes selling simple so you can put yourself and your ideas out there. Your thing could be making ebooks or earrings. Shopify will make your success possible. So when you're ready to launch your idea into the spotlight, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform that backs millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash night, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash night to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash night. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Check out Audible's new original, Night Vale Presents, Unlicensed, from the creators of the chart-topping podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. In Unlicensed, a strange and sinister conspiracy is lurking in California's inland empire, and the unlikely detective duo, Molly and Lou, must work together to unravel the mystery. Molly is a recent divorcee with a knack for neatness who answers an ad to assist a private investigator named Lou, a brilliant but scattered detective. An inquiry into a workplace accident quickly turns into a complex conspiracy involving a missing boy, a suspicious wellness center, and the governor of California. Unlicensed is modern noir crime drama set in the outskirts of Los Angeles. The story explores the duality of humankind, the lasting impact of economic inequality, and the cult-like attributes of the modern-day wellness industry. Visit audible.com unlicensed to listen now. After putting Ava to sleep that night, I went to find Alan. He had retreated to his office, which he did a lot lately. I knew this was all difficult for him, but he wasn't even trying to be a good father anymore. He was so angry all the time that I was starting to believe that maybe he had it in him to hurt her. I made the mistake of telling him so, and he proved me right. He grabbed me by the shoulders and pushed me roughly against the wall. She isn't good for you or us, he said with ice in his tone, towering over me. Until that moment, I thought of him as a giant teddy bear, but then I had never seen him raging before. What are you saying? Like, literally, what do you want to do? Give up your daughter because you can't figure out how to be a good father? He leaned over me with strong, wide shoulders and fingers just long enough to wrap around my neck. This is not my fault, he hissed. Then he released me, sliding back into the calm, relaxed posture he usually assumed as if he had practiced it in the mirror. I still stood frozen against the wall, my body tensed up with fear. Alan shook his head and took my face in his hands gently. 
Baby, I'm sorry. It's, it's so stressful. I don't know what to do about any of this. I stayed quiet, my lips sealed to stop them from trembling. He continued, Hey, you know what? Just don't worry about cooking tonight. I'll pick something up. You just relax and forget all of this. From that night on, when Alan retreated to his office, I left him there. It didn't make a huge amount of difference to my or Ava's life anyway. I had always assumed most of the parental duties, and now he had begun making himself scarce on the weekends as well, driving up north to the cabin he owned from well before we'd met. I'd only been there a few times on weekend getaways, but now it became Alan's home away from home, away from Ava and me. Four years into Ava's life and Alan was practically a ghost to us. I felt nothing but relief. I'd mourned the loss of my sweet, caring husband long before, and at least Ava could finally be happy and at ease in her own home. She used to be quiet and withdrawn with Alan in the house, but now she talked and played almost like a normal toddler. I say almost because not many toddlers speak in perfect, complete sentences. It was like she was an adult who still held on to a few colloquialisms from toddlerhood. One moment she would be speaking in clear sentences, the next she would use words like tummy and tinkle. Still, she knew words like inspiring and delectable. The problem was, she also knew words like murder and behead. Not long after Alan started spending his weekends at the cabin, Ava began telling me more about her imaginary friend, who now had an entire story and fleshed-out personality. Her full name, said Ava, was Catherine Tillman. Catherine worked at a bank and lived with her parents in Farmington, a town that we often pass by on the road just north of us. Catherine liked to read, her favorite drink was iced tea with lemon, and she had a sweet little calico kitten, Charlie. Charlie liked to sit on her chest and purr while Catherine slept. Everything we did, Ava would tell me how Catherine felt about it. I would cut the crust off of Ava's sandwiches because what four-year-old wants crust on their sandwiches? But she informed me that Catherine not only wanted me to leave the crusts on, but also preferred chunky peanut butter and strawberry jam. I shrugged and complied. As I would watch my daughter eat her sandwich with the crust on and sip iced tea with lemon, I began to wonder why Ava was trying to be just like her imaginary friend. Was that normal? It continued with other things. Ava wanted to watch daytime soaps because Catherine liked them. She wanted coffee in the morning and long hot baths at night because Catherine loved them. It started to feel like Catherine was taking over Ava. Until the night that I asked Ava a casual question and her answer changed everything. I got Ava into bed and teased, Does Catherine need to be tucked in too? Ava looked at me earnestly, a bit of sadness in her eyes. Mommy, Catherine is me. You just call me Ava. Oh no, I thought, this has gone too far. I tucked her curls behind her ear and kissed her cheek gently. Sweetie, you are Ava, my Ava, the best little girl in the whole world. I know you love Catherine and she's a wonderful friend, but you're Ava, okay? Ava slowly shook her head and solemnly responded, No, Mama, you don't understand. I am Catherine. A long time ago when I was a grown-up, I went through a tunnel, and when I came out of it, I was a baby again. I listened in astonishment as she continued, describing what it was like to be a child all over again. She told me how frustrated she was at having to learn how to walk and talk again, and even apologized to me for all her dirty diapers. 
I listened in silence, not sure how to respond, as a strange sensation of fear made its way up my spine. That night, I didn't sleep a wink. In the morning, I made a call to a child psychiatrist and later that week took Ava to see him. One doctor became two, then three, then four. We received a multitude of diagnoses, multiple personality disorder, delusions, schizophrenia, all terrifying words for a mother to hear about her sweet little child who seemed so healthy otherwise. By Ava's fifth birthday, I was so overwhelmed I didn't know whether to put her on medication for the rest of her life or just wait and hope for the best, which seemed like a pipe dream with Catherine taking over more and more of the precious few moments I had with my daughter. Ava had even begun demanding that I and her teachers and classmates and anyone we knew call her Catherine. Alan refused to, of course, but then he didn't really call her anything. We had begun living almost separate lives for the past couple of years. It was a relief given how things had been in the past. But just when I thought things couldn't get worse with Ava, she told me how Catherine had died. Back then, when Catherine was alive, people in the tri-state area had been going missing for years, Ava told me. Once or twice a year, a young woman would go out at night and never come back home. It wasn't often enough to cause a panic, as is the unfortunate truth in these situations. The only ones affected often were the women's grieving families and the telephone poles covered in missing posters. Soon enough, even those would fade away as the rain made the ink run until the faces staring out were unrecognizable. Inevitably, the police would chalk the disappearances up to these women running away, and a lot of times the families couldn't even get the cops to classify them as missing people. Catherine trusted the police because her own father was a retired officer. She didn't feel there was any reason to be too concerned about going out alone at night. After all, she was in her 20s, the age where people tend to feel indestructible. Besides, there was nothing to do in Farmington unless you got all of your excitement for the week from going to church. If she wanted to have any kind of life, she needed to head into the city to meet friends. One night, as she took the country road that led to the highway, she drove slowly, aware of all the potholes. The road hadn't been paved in decades, the sort of road anyone from a small secluded town was familiar with. It was lined with old craggy trees and took hairpin turns when you least expected them. Catherine took one turn with extra caution. It was the sharpest one on the drive, and the trees grew so thick there you couldn't see the end of the turn. So far, she'd never joined the ranks of those who had hit unsuspecting deer or raccoons around that corner. This time, however, she hit something much, much worse. A sinister person Ava called the bad man. His body collided with her front bumper with a loud, sickening thud. Catherine slammed on the brakes and swerved. It did little good. The man rolled over the hood of her car and fell limply onto the road. She nearly drove away in sheer panic, the adrenaline pumping through her veins, giving her little room for rational thought. Thankfully, or perhaps unfortunately, a little voice in her head reminded her that she hadn't been going all that fast, and he likely wasn't badly injured. She needed to get out of the car and check on him. It was the right thing to do. Catherine took a few deep breaths, cut the engine, and stepped out of the car. She shakily stepped over the man's limp body to get closer to his face and gently shook his shoulder. The last few years have been rough around the holidays because we've had to cancel one too many get-togethers. You know why. But not this year. We are back, baby, and it's time to celebrate. And you can return like a hero with something delicious from Milk Bar. 
James Beard Award-winning celebrity chef Christina Tosi opened the first milk bar bakery in 2008 in New York City, and she has been shaking up the dessert scene ever since with her unique spin on iconic flavors. And now you can ship milk bars desserts nationwide. It is not just the perfect dessert to have at your holiday gathering so you don't have to be slaving away, but also it's the perfect gift for anyone and everyone in your life this holiday season. For a limited time, Milk Bar is offering their delicious new chocolate mint chip cake and truffles and peppermint bark snap cookies just in time for the holidays. Also, you can get your hands on their limited quantity of lab drops, including peppermint tie-dye pie made in limited batches straight from their experimental kitchen. Every single Milk Bar creation is made fresh, thoughtfully and beautifully packaged so it arrives in perfect condition and ready to enjoy. Remember, it's never too early to plan ahead, but listen, you guys are running out of time to plan for the holidays, so you should place your order today and schedule your treats to be delivered right before the holidays. Now, just in case you kind of wait last minute and you need their dessert stat, they also offer fast, even overnight nationwide delivery. My family and I got to sample some of these new holiday flavors, and I admit I did hide a few of the peppermint bark snap cookies away just for me, which might seem kind of Grinch-like, but look, I deserve it. And you deserve it too. Check it out. Right now, Milk Bar has a special limited time offer. You can get $15 off of any order of $80 or more when you go to MilkBarStore.com slash night. Once again, you'll get 15 bucks off an order of $80 by going to MilkBarStore.com slash night. MilkBarStore.com slash night. Can you hear me, sir? She asked. Her question was met with a cough and a pair of vaguely familiar eyes fluttering open. She had seen him in town before, she thought. Catherine was so overwhelmed with relief in seeing him pull himself up to his feet that she thought nothing of it when he asked her to drive him back to his cabin instead of calling 911. He reassured her he was fine, and that he didn't want to bother the good folks at the police station over a little accident. For a young woman who dearly didn't want to go to jail, it seemed too good to be true. And of course, it was. As she drove down the dirt road to his cabin, he was quiet, though he stared at her a little more than she would have liked. She turned on the radio to break the silence, and the mamas and the papas came crooning through. The song eventually faded into white noise, the radio signal getting weaker, deeper into the woods, and she switched it back off. After a few minutes, she started to feel deeply uncomfortable. She sped up, better to get the drive over as soon as possible. The bad man wasn't so keen to rush off, however, when they at last arrived at his cabin. He invited her in for coffee, saying it was the least he could do after making her drive so far out of her way. A nagging feeling at the base of Catherine's skull told her not to go in. There were too many teeth in his smile. But it felt wrong to reject a kind gesture. Catherine shook off the dread and stepped out of the car. She never even made it to the front door. The bad man didn't like getting his floors dirty with blood. She never even felt it when her head was sliced clean off with an axe. Ava paused her tail to describe the bad man. He was extremely tall, she said, and had wide shoulders and a big frame. He had a burn mark on the side of his face that left a scar on his left cheek. Despite his size, he looked friendly. His wide brown eyes were soft. His posture was calm and not intimidating. He didn't look like the kind of person you expected to prey on young women driving alone at night, but he did just that. He lived in a cabin on that old country road 
watching the cars pass by at night, waiting for his next victim. I asked her to describe him again and again, hoping she might have missed some detail. Each time, she depicted him in exactly the same way, and each time, he sounded exactly like Alan. Surely, I thought, she was confused. She was getting her reality and her imagination mixed up. Finally, I gently said, Gosh, sweetie, the way you're describing him, it sounds like he kind of looked like your daddy. Ava crumpled in on herself and clutched at her face as if she'd been shocked. She screamed, not like a toddler going through a temper tantrum, but like a grown woman faced with a terrible, agonizing fate. I sat there in shock and watched as my little girl screamed and sobbed and rocked, her arms over her head as if to try and protect herself. The next morning, I took her to see the only kind of specialist I hadn't thought to visit yet, the only one left I thought could help us. Ava giggled in her car seat the whole drive, happily playing with her dolls as if the past evening hadn't happened. The spiritualist, the willowy woman with frizzy brown hair who introduced herself as Luisa de la Rosa. She ushered us into her office, and it wasn't what I exactly had expected. Maybe I expected perhaps more crystals and macrame, but the office instead was clean, crisp, and professional. She looked at my confused expression with a knowing smile. We're not all palm readers and psychics, she said with a warm chuckle. And then she turned to Ava and asked, Would you like something to drink, Catherine? I tried to hide my dismay as Louisa traipsed off to fetch a glass of iced tea with lemon. The fact that she hadn't even bothered to address my daughter with her real name bothered me. Louisa came back into the room, took one look at my face, and reassured me. If Catherine is indeed a spirit from beyond the veil... Then believe me, Ava is still surely in there, she said. And I'm not a mind reader, she said, seemingly having read my mind. I'm just very empathetic. Louisa sat across from Ava at a small cafe-style table, each sipping from their glasses like colleagues at a lunch meeting. She addressed her with far more seriousness than one typically might give to a five-year-old with pigtails. The questions were simple, almost conversational. Louisa learned about Catherine's home life, her schooling, her likes and dislikes, and her quirks. I sat in the back of the room on a leather couch. I was wound up like a spring, so tense I don't even remember breathing during that half-hour conversation. By the end, Louisa and Ava were laughing like old friends. The older woman stood, tidied up the glasses of iced tea, and made her way over to where I was sitting on pins and needles. She told me what I already knew. Anne had probably understood for months, but had hoped against hope that someone would tell me otherwise. Catherine was real. She had returned after being murdered, cut down in her prime much earlier than her time, as Ava. Reincarnation, said Louisa, was a real phenomenon. It had been documented for centuries across the world. It happened when a soul's work was unfinished on the earth. I bit back my tears, took a steadying breath, and turned to Ava. Ave, Catherine, I said in a shaky voice, I need you to tell me right now. Is the man who killed you this bad man? Is he Ava's father? Ava nodded, her face screwing up into a tight grimace as she fought off tears. I rushed over to her and wrapped my arms around her. Whether I was hugging Ava or Catherine or both, I didn't care. I had taught her to walk, tucked her into bed, built pillow forts with her and read her stories on rainy afternoons. I was her mother, 
It was my job to keep her safe, and yet I had forced her to live with a man she was terrified of. Well, no more. I didn't need any more evidence than the look on her face. I would protect her at all costs. That night, as Ava slept peacefully, I got online to search for any information I could find about a missing Catherine Tillman. It took just a few clicks, and there she was. 23-year-old missing Farmington woman, Catherine Tillman, disappeared one night on her way to meet friends. Neither her car nor body were ever found. The parents offered a reward to find their only child. I stared at the picture of Catherine that appeared in every newspaper clip about her, in the missing persons posters her parents distributed, and my heart ached with maternal love. Her eyes were Ava's eyes. The next day, I was practically laughed out of the police station. They didn't send squad cars out based on ghost stories, they said, but not without a few choice words, and I hardened my resolve. If no one would help us, we would just have to help ourselves, and we would help Catherine finish what she had returned to do. When Alan knocked on the door the following Monday on one of his brief trips home, there was a fake sweetness to his tone. Hey, honey, what did you do to the locks? He asked. My key isn't working. Inside, the house was prepared for battle. Ava was locked in her room upstairs, and Alan's gun cabinet was in pieces. He'd never given me a key, but I didn't need a key to smash through the glass and get to his hunting guns. I cocked the shotgun and sidled up to the door. I changed the locks, I said. His massive hand slammed against the door. Are you kidding me? This is my house too. I know who you are, Alan. And I know what you did, I stammered. A long silence followed and suddenly he screamed, You shouldn't believe everything that little brat, punctuated by another slam on the door, tells you. Then silence again. I peeked through the small glass window in the door and saw that Alan had left the porch. I let out the breath that I'd been holding. Suddenly, a fist pounded into the door, shattering the glass. His fist, scratched and bleeding, reached through the broken window and grabbed blindly for me. I fell backwards, discharging the gun in the process. The shot rang through the house, leaving me clutching at my ringing ears while Alan reeled backwards. Buckshot ricocheted off the walls and stung my skin. I scrambled backwards, unable to get up, but Alan was quicker to recover. He ran full force into the door with a loud crash. The wood shattered and splintered but didn't give way. I scrambled to reload the gun. I could hear Alan's feet pounding on the porch as he ran towards the door again. This time, he blew through the door like a bullet, chunks of wood flying through the air. He was still in his battering ram stance, stepping sideways with his arms curled into his chest. It barely seemed to phase him. He unrolled his shoulders and straightened his back to his full height. Suddenly, I was reminded of the story about the first time European hunters tried to kill a grizzly bear in the New World. No matter how many times they shot at it, it just kept coming, its sheer size shielding it from any fatal wounds. I cowered in the corner, shaky hands jamming ammo into my gun to no avail. Alan came towards me in slow, deliberate steps. He knew he had me. I wondered for a moment how he would kill me. I felt numbness wash over me. This was what I imagined a cornered animal felt like. I was ready to give up. I was covered in gashes from the broken glass, my ears were still ringing, and each sob I choked back was more painful than the last. 
I was shaking from terror and closed my eyes, ready to meet my end. But then, Ava screamed from upstairs. Alan turned on his heel and began marching up the stairs. He called out her name and then Catherine's. His voice was sweet and soft, a parody of the loving father I had wanted him to be. She screamed again. I could hear her running across the wooden floors in her room. He was on the very last step, just around the corner from her door. One last time, she screamed, Mommy! And just like that, my hand stopped shaking, the tears stopped flowing, and I loaded my gun. If the gunshot didn't kill him, the fall down the stairs did. He crashed into the banister on his way down, shattering it and his arm along with it. By the time he collided with the floor below, his body was twisted and riddled with buckshot. I left it there. The only thing I cared about then was getting Ava as far away from that place as possible. When others eventually came, there would be no question who killed him. But it was a big world, and I was determined for the two of us to get lost in it. Today's story is based on the many, many accounts of reincarnation that have been documented worldwide. For example, four-year-old Edward, the son of Patricia Austrian. He was always a little bit peculiar, but when he was around four, he started complaining about a sharp pain from the shot in his throat, a battle scar that he said he'd earned in the trenches during World War I. At first, she thought he'd just gotten a sore throat and had been watching too many war documentaries on TV. After all, World War I was decades ago. But it wasn't until he began describing in great detail his time on the front lines as an 18-year-old soldier named James that Patricia began to wonder if there was more to this story than a boy's overactive imagination. On the other side of the world in Thailand, a little boy named Chennai recalled his past life as a teacher who had been tragically shot and killed. He led his mother to the village where his past life's parents lived somehow knowing the exact location of their home. Seeing their son reincarnated brought the grieving couple some comfort, eerie as the circumstances were. These are only two of thousands of cases in which children seem to remember having lived a past life. Dr. Ivan Stevenson, former chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, has documented over 2,500 of these cases. In a whopping 1,567, the person who the child described as their past life was identified as an actual person. What's more, the children's descriptions of their past lives were factually accurate. In every instance, the child began describing their past life as soon as they were able to speak, almost as if they had been waiting for the opportunity to finally tell their story. In Stevenson's studies, the majority of the children who described a past life came from cultures where reincarnation was widely accepted. Could these children just be playing pretend, using their religious background as a jumping-off point to spin a fantastical tale? Or are children from cultures who don't believe in reincarnation simply not believed by their parents when they tell them the story? Who knows? But if one ever tells you stories about people, places, and things they shouldn't know, you might want to take a deeper look into it. Tonight's Tale was written by Jamie Battle and Rabia Chaudhry. 
Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited by Anton Doty and Matt Sewell. It's mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake. Now that you're spooked to the bone and won't be able to sleep all night, please go ahead and follow, rate, and review us. Sweet dreams.